Hello, friends. We have something a little different for you today. While I'm away from the studio, it's an episode of our shorter podcast, Hashtag STRask, where Amy and I respond to questions sent to us through Twitter. And if you like this show, we hope you'll subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And now, here's Hashtag STRask. You're listening to Stand to Reasons, hashtag STRask podcast. I'm Amy Hall, and I welcome you. Thank you for listening. Greg Kokel's here with me, and we're going to answer your questions that you sent on Twitter with the hashtag STRask. Okay, Greg. All right. Here's a question from Anthony. Is praying once in faith for something and leaving it with God better than repeatedly raising up the same requests? Jesus seemed to pray effectively a single time and warned against vain repetitions. Sometimes my prayers seem unavoidably unavoidably repetitious and toilsome. This list seems to never stop growing. Then he gives two references, James 5.15 and Matthew 21.18-22. Uh, I presume the Matthew one is the vain repetitions. Okay, let, uh, let me say something yeah, I have a bit to say about this, and uh, with fear and trembling, because prayer is not my strong suit. And what I mean by that is I, I pray a lot, um, but prayer is a confusing enterprise for me. It's theologically confusing, <laughs> partly because I don't get many of my prayers answered, um, it seems. Now, God has his reasons for that, so let me just add that caveat but the vain repetition concern that Jesus raised in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, had to do with just repeating a bunch of noise. Notice he, he didn't say repetition. He said vain repetition. And don't pray like the heathen do. Now, um, we even know uh, and I, I don't know exactly about how all the heathen prayed back then. Okay, but we can, we know of circumstances where religious people are are chanting mantras or repeating statements over and over and over again, as if there's some magic in the repetition and the amount of things they're saying. And uh, Buddhists have prayer beads, and so do Muslims. Actually, uh, they may use it for a little different purpose. Muslims, but. Um, and there are these prayer wheels that, you know, Buddhists have. They swirl the wheel, and every time the wheel goes around, uh, that's a prayer going up. In fact, I just read somewhere that now they use technology and kind of attach this notion to their disk and their computer because it spins faster. And so this is more prayers going up. This is the kind of thing that Jesus condemned. And incidentally, I was raised Roman Catholic. And I, 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 I'm not trying to be um, unpleasant here, but um, praying the rosary was something we were taught to do, and this is exactly what that amounted to for me, certainly, and I think the vast majority of people who pray that. Um, and uh, there's the Our Father, there's the Glory Be, but it, it's mostly Hail Marys, and I, I think that the Hail Mary is a theologically unsound prayer anyway. 
But um, all it was a matter of is getting a, a noise out. Hail Mary, for the grace of the Lord, and then you do this thing, and then you move your finger to the next speed. And then you accomplish something by completing the round. And you complete it by making these noises. Now, I, I'm not going to discredit the prayer as being disingenuous by someone who prays the prayer by itself. But when you pray that prayer 50 times in a row, I, I promise you, it is very hard to be thinking about the words that you're praying. And by the way, uh, I think Protestants do this as well, even with prayers that they come up with themselves. Uh, even prayers for, you know, bless this food kind of thing. We have little patterns we pray in, and then they become per, uh, perfunctory. And this is, for me, it's very important not to give thanks at a meal in a perfunctory way, okay? But I think this is what Jesus is speaking against. And, for example, other religious traditions, and even within Christianity, we have occasions where we are making repetitious prayers in that fashion, and Jesus is saying that's not going to help anybody do anything. But he is not speaking against persisting in meaningful prayer. And in fact, I think uh, in Gospel of Luke, maybe chapter 11 here, you have a, a, a teaching by Jesus about uh, and offers a parable to make the point of continuing to persist and not lose heart. All right. I'm not sure what the James passage says. Maybe I should turn there. But uh, do you know, what is the uh, citation there, Amy? In, James five fifteen. I think that says the the persistent prayer of a righteous man prevails much. Five. I'm sorry. I'm First Peter. Oh, I didn't go. It I'm, says, uh, and the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven. Oh, I see. Yeah, that is a different situation. Thank you for reading that for me. Um, that's a situation where there's a group of of people praying, and uh, that are elders, where the sick so person I, comes to. So I, I and I guess the it sounds like one prayer is enough in that circumstance to accomplish the end, you know. And maybe that's what James means. Maybe he's just making reference to a prayer, although sometimes, and we know this from experience, it's prevailing prayer over a certain circumstance that eventually is effective. And this is the part that's mysterious to me. I do not understand what you might call the calculus of prayer. I don't know how the you know, the, 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 how it works. How many times you have to pray, how long you have to pray, with what kind of intensity, how many people, what if you have a thousand people praying for a minute? Is that the same as one person praying for a thousand minutes? I don't, I, it, it just, I can't figure that out. Yeah, all I know is, I mean, the thing that I stand on is, you have not because you ask not, and with regards to the critical and important things in my life, like my family and my work, um, then I, 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 may it never be said of me that I have not because I ask not. I do get weary of praying for things. And so what I end up doing is I, I, I end up praying for the same thing for, in a different way. And I even said this morning while I was driving here, you know, I, I, I said, Lord, I, I can't just keep repeating the same line over and over. But if this is the thing that I want, 
you to do, and I see a number of steps that could lead to the fulfillment of that, I'm going to pray for those individual steps to take place as well. But you can do it any way you want. doesn't mean you got to take my steps, but uh, you want me to pray unceasingly or or at least persist. I mean, there's a sense in which we're always in front in God's presence, engaging him. And there's another sense where we have specific requests that we continue to press forward on. And I can't press forward on by saying, save this person, please save this person, please save this person. Okay, please save this person. I mean, this was the concern that was raised by Anthony. At the same time, um, I need to persist in prayers regarding these. My father became a Christian just a year and a half before he died. He was about my age, actually, when he became a Christian. And so, um, you know, that was, you know, prayer, persisting in prayer that made a difference. So I don't think the Matthew passage uh, suggests that we shouldn't persist in prayer. It means that we shouldn't pray inanely. And even when I'm praying, I realize I'm sometimes... I'm getting distracted, and I start saying silly Christian phrases that have nothing to do with what I'm after. They're prayer phrases, but I realize I'm not invested in them. Like I say, oh, God, I'm babbling right now. I'm stop, and I start over, and then I start praying in a meaningful fashion. So I can even babble. I do babble in my own prayers. And I think those babbling kinds of prayers, those perfunctory, meaningless pr- things are are not effective. They're not real prayers. I think that when we pray, we can pray over and over about the same thing, but we we want to be asking in a meaningful way, praying intelligibly. Mm -hmm. And then God gets to decide whether he's going to act or not. As far as the James passage is concerned, I think James is just speaking in general, go to the elders, pray, and their healing is available. I don't think it's a promise that every single time you pray, you're going to get healing or you only have to pray once. I think that's uh, being overly specific about that point. I think it's more of a generalization. At least that's my take on it. Right. I don't think seeing an answer to prayer after one prayer in the Bible, seeing that example proves that you only need to ever pray once for anything. And if you if you read through it, next time, Anthony, next time you read through the New Testament, just look at what is said about prayer. In fact, Greg, you have something on the website. It's called New Testament Prayer, and you went mm. through every passage right. that talks about prayer in the New Testament. So you could just go through that. And what you see, especially with Paul, you'll see him exhorting people to pray or saying, you know, I constantly remember you in, in my prayers. Mm. I'm constantly making mention of you in my prayers. Here's something he says in Colossians 4, 2 through 4. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ. In other words, he gives a specific prayer and says, always remember us in prayer, praying this. Mm-hmm. So obviously he's asking for that prayer more than once. He he does this again also in Colossians 1, 9 through 12. He says, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with all the knowledge of his will. And then he goes on with a bunch of different things. So obviously he's praying that more than once. Mm-hmm. And then finally, I have something from Jesus that, that came to mind here. Look at Matthew 26, 39 through 44. 
And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And then in verse 42, he says, He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. And then verse 45, then he came, oh, uh, sorry, 44, and he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Mm-hmm. So that should settle the matter. If Jesus prayed for the same thing three times, you can pray more than once. Mm-hmm. If it's on your mind and you're thinking about it, pray about it. I might offer this uh, thought about the prayer in Gethsemane. Um, I think there might be a little different thing going on there because Jesus knew that he wasn't going to get his prayer answered because he knew what the purpose was. But he was in agony regarding the issue. And so he could take his agony multiple times before the Father and express his desire to not suffer what was ahead of him and at the same time express his willingness to do what God the Father had purposed for him. And um, so I think that's in a little different category than some of the other prayers. But uh, nevertheless, there is this multiple going before God in an emotive way, expressing it. I mean, you, one might have be facing a circumstance that the Lord has brought into life that they know there is no, that, that there probably is no change going to happen. Yet a person could go, go before God and still agonize and pour out their heart and mm-hmm. ask for the change. Let me back up. Maybe they don't know it's not going to happen. Jesus knew this just because he was Jesus, but may, maybe they don't know. But having the willingness to say at the end of the prayer, not my will, but thine be done. That is, if you say no, I am going to honor your answer, because what's most important is that I do what you I I cooperate with what you have purposed, I think is the best way to put that. And maybe if you have a a list that is way too long, you don't have to keep praying for things if they're not on your mind. If, you know, maybe you could, there's a a, a prayer app called, I think it's called Prayer Mate. You've been using that, Greg, recently. Well, I I just got it. uh, And I, uh, I'll look it up right now here. So that, that app, you can choose how many prayer requests you want to pray for at any certain time, and it will rotate them. So that's another option that will help you to work through these long lists. Because mm-hmm. I, when you do have a long list, you can get to the point where you're just saying words like you were describing, Greg. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it's if something is on your mind, then pray for it. And you could even pray, you know, at the beginning, Lord, please guide my prayers you know, the Holy Spirit, have him move me to, to pray and then trust in him. I mean, we can only do so much. You can't pray for every single request that's out there because there's obviously way too much to pray for. Yeah, that app is called Prayer Mate. And I do find myself, um, you know, winnowing the, <laughs> the, the needs according to my emotional investment in them. I mean, the things that I care about the most, I'm going to pray about most genuinely and authentically. And the things that I care about the most are are going to be the things that are most important in my life. So I am going to pray for my family more than I pray for anything else. 
And then the second thing is going to be praying for Stand to Reason and my close colleagues and stuff like that. So those, but that's because that's where my heart is, and I think those were the important things. And it's much easier to pray for something you're regarding, something you're emotionally invested in, uh, than something you're not. Now, if people ask me to pray for them, and I just have no emotional connection to the need, I am going to pray right there and then. Mm-hmm. I am going to pray for them, unrelated to my emotional need, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to construct before God, not necessarily with them, but pray for them and construct a prayer to God of faith, Lord, I'm coming to you by faith. That is, I'm trusting you to hear the prayer, even though it's not something I'm emotionally invested in. Then here's the need, and I ask for this, 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 and this. That's consistent with the request. And then at least I, I will have genuinely gone before the Lord with the prayer, and I won't forget it because it's not kind of emotionally front and center for me. Um, and that just let you know how I deal with a circumstance mm-hmm. like that. Here's a question from Sam, who says he is a longtime listener from Oz. So welcome to the show, Sam. He says, "Just I'm just after your thoughts on how to read and apply the Psalms. For example, Psalm 91, 1 and 2 is an applicable promise, but reading on, God doesn't always save us from deadly pestilence, etc. Yeah, Psalms, <laughs> Psalm 91 is one of my most annoying Psalms. <laughs> Uh, there is a Christological application to that psalm, by the way, and it's actually made by the devil in the temptation. If I'm not mistaken, it's I think it's Psalm 91. I, I, uh, I do not know how to read that. Ten thousand will fall at your right side, and it will not come near you. You know, no plague will come near your tent. I think this is all language of Psalm 91. And, um, and it's hyperbole. It's exaggeration for the sake of effect. It is meant in a poetic way to talk about God's uh, protection for those that are his own, but it is not a promise that the protection will always avail in that particular way. It's obviously not a promise, because it were were a promise, it would happen. And so... um, that has to temper the way we read these psalms. And sometimes when we go through the psalms, we are we just are not—we're going to—we're not going to know what to do with them. I mean, read them. Read through. Every, every you know, when I read through my whole Bible, I read all the psalms. But, uh, but I don't always know what to do with them. Uh, by the way, I, I saw, using my Logos, it was a demonstration I saw, it turns out that they, they have clusters to represent how many psalms, the psalms and what they're about, and psalms of lament are by far the most populous type of psalm. Mm. It's amazing. And um, I, under, I identify with that. Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, you know, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long uh, will I take courage in my heart, having pain in uh, counsel in my heart, having pain in my heart all the day? How long will my enemies prevail over me? You know, this is like sometimes we just have to pray that because this is what what David is experiencing in that particular Psalm 13, first few verses. The tone changes a little bit later, but th- that 
reflects the lament of the heart of many of us stuck in a situation that is very, very difficult, and it seems like God is not listening. So, um, you know, I, I think I pray those psalms oftentimes, but there are some psalms I don't know how to pray or what to make of them. Mm-hmm. I think some of these, the royal psalms that have to do with the king, etc., meant more to Israel than they do to us now. I'm not saying they don't have any application or meaning for us, but they just, they don't maybe resonate with us quite the same way. And Psalm 91 is just one of those psalms that is very, especially, it's the one that is most frustrating for me. It's interesting you would ask about that. Well, let me read the first four verses here. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for it is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and bulwark. I think the, I think the only thing we can take from this is... Um, First of all, he is our only option for a right. fortress and a refuge. He is the one who delivers and protects. Yes, yeah, so he he is he is the way out of these things. He is the one to look to for deliverance. And the last part of this verse here is his faithfulness is a shield and a bulwark. So I think what we can take from this is the idea that our deliverer is God that he is faithful, that he is the one we should look to. And no matter what happens, you know, look at Jesus. As you mentioned, the devil tempted him with a verse from here about how, you know, he will, he will bear, he will, uh, they will bear you up in their hands that you do not strike your foot against a stone. And he was Mm -hmm. trying to tempt Jesus to test God. Mm Mm-hmm. Jesus ultimately was put to death. Mm-hmm. Okay, so obviously um, we cannot we cannot trust that everything that happens to us will all be sweetness and light because mm-hmm. it wasn't that way for Jesus. But we can trust in God's faithfulness. We know that the Father was faithful to Jesus even with all that He went through, and so we we look to Him as someone who is faithful. And as the one who will deliver us, but the way that happens, we cannot know for certain how that will happen. Right. I, I love the passages, those verses, verse four that you read, um, and I think what follows in five to ten um, is hi- hyperbolic examples. Now, there's exaggerated examples about how that might take place. It's poetry, after all. Eleven through thirteen. Um, uh, more like that, and that's the passage that the devil used. And the last three verses, though, I think are are beautiful. And even though we can't, in a certain sense, take them to an extreme as a promise, this is what the psalmist is leaving us with to rest in. Because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high because he has known my name. I will. He will call upon me. I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him with a long life. I will satisfy him and let him see my salvation. It's really wonderful. Keep in mind his poetry. 
These aren't rigid promises. But I will say, I regularly pray for my family that God would cover them with his pinions. Of course, this is an application of the language from Psalm 91, um, verse 4. He will cover you with his pinions. Pinions are feathers. So this is a picture of a, a mother hen, so to speak, spreading her wings over her brood, to provide protection from them for them. And this is the picture I have when I pray for my family, God spreading his wings over my household and my brood and my family to give protection from the enemy. Mm-hmm. So I incorporate some of these images, but I, I it, clearly we can't take these things at it literalistically at face value. It's poetry. He, his, he is always our refuge in any sort of, of, persecution or suffering. But the way that refuge works is not necessarily the end of the persecution and suffering. Mm-hmm. It's There are other intangible ways that he is our refuge, that he comforts us, that he um, gives us peace and forgiveness and all these things that we need. He is our refuge. And Greg, you mentioned this might apply somewhat differently to the old covenant. And that could be too, because they remember they had the promises that if they made God their refuge, then he would prosper them. That was part of their covenant. We don't have that covenant. So those aspects mm-hmm. may be related to that in some of these Psalms as well. Fortunately, so we mind. don't have that covenant because there's a flip side. You do good, you get good, you do bad, you get bad, you know, Deuteronomy That's 28 right. and 29 and 30. And ultimately, every suffering that we have, you know, even when it says no evil will befall you, even in the case of evil happening to us, we know that all things are working together for good. So even in the case of something happening to you, and there is a sense in which it is not evil befalling you, it is something that's happening to you that God is is sovereign over that is working for your good. Mm-hmm. So all of these are different ways to look at this, the, the, so much of the New Testament is about suffering. So much of the Bible is about suffering. And I wish churches talked more about it because it's something we all need to figure out or we're going to just be blindsided when things happen in our lives, which they will ultimately. Well, thank you, Greg. Thank you, Anthony. And thank you, Sam from Oz. We're, we're happy to hear from you and we couldn't do the show without you. Send us your questions on Twitter with the hashtag STR Ask. This is Amy Hall and Greg Kokel for Stand to Reason. 